Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. From Connecticut Public Radio in New Haven, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aitken. Coming up this hour, tips for cooking your best turkey yet and pulling off Thanksgiving dinner in general. A chef and a beloved local gastronomist join me in the studio to talk through everything from turkey temps to mashed potatoes. And our intern, Letitia Peters, talks with her mom about rethinking the traditional Thanksgiving menu. Plus, producer Tegan Engel speaks with two Indigenous women, a professor of Native and Indigenous Studies and a student seed keeper. You'll learn about them and the importance of one very tenacious Buffalo Creek squash. But first, Chef Raquel Rivera is the owner of A Pinch of Salt, where she teaches hands-on cooking classes and caters events and parties. And Jason Sobosinski is a Connecticut native who has a master's in gastronomy from Boston University. He has a hand in some of your favorite food and drink places in the state. Casey's Provisions in Wallingford, Mystic Cheese Company in Groton, and Black Hog Brewing Company in Oxford. He also is a founder-slash-partner of Olmo Bagels, Ordinary, the Crispy Melty Food Truck, and Haven Hot Chicken, all in New Haven. Before we start this tip fest, I asked Raquel and Jason what Thanksgiving looks like at their houses. So I do Thanksgiving at my mom's house. It's her favorite holiday, so we all come out there. And I am responsible for all the things that people normally do not care to do. And so there's a lot of knife skills and food safety and those type of things that I'm kind of taking care of in the back of everything. But it's a chaotic day at Mama's house. A lot of fun. There's seven of us and then uh, all the grandchildren. So that makes for about 25 people at the table. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. And what about you, Jason? I am very bossy at Thanksgiving. (laughs) I like to put together the menu. I like to assign family members specific things to their strengths. I usually take on the turkeys. I take on some of the baking. But Aunt Michelle makes poppy butter and challah bread. My mom always does steamed broccoli. There's certain things that we just, we have to have. We flux, you know, because people go off to other families here and there. So we can be as small as a dozen. And we always have someone who is just a random stranger. I don't know why, but there's always a random stranger that needs... Uh, needs a Thanksgiving home, but we've we've had up to thirty at times. Okay. So yeah, it's always a great time. So you mentioned turkeys. I would like to talk turkey. For some people, cooking a whole bird is something they do only once a year, so it can be a little scary. So where do we start? And I want to know all about your turkeys. I'm not super duper in love with the ginormous turkey. Seriously, I don't get it. There was a Norman Rockwell painting once. And then that's what we have to follow? Like, (laughs) no thank you. Um, So I I typically like to do two birds. I go on the smaller side, 10 to 12 pounds, get the best possible bird I can. Fresh or frozen? Do you have a preference? Do you have a farmer you want to shout out? Yeah, I do not go frozen. I really like D'Artagnan. I've used them Mm. for years and years and years. They have heritage birds. They have organic birds. 
They've got Green Circle Birds, which is a really cool program where area restaurants all throughout New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut donate their their food scraps. And awesome. the birds are fed food scraps, which is really cool. So it's a green circle. Um, so I usually get a couple birds from them. And I like to do different brines. Sometimes I'll do a wet brine, just like in a five-gallon bucket. Sometimes I'll do a dry brine, just in a bag, always just some salt. I think brining is, is absolutely essential. And then my biggest tip for turkey, whether I'm smoking it, roasting it, deep frying it, is turkey is made of two different kinds of meat. You've got the white meat, it's the breast, and you've got the dark meat, that's the thigh and the leg predominantly. And I break my turkey down. I cook it separately because the way you cook white meat and the way you cook dark meat, completely different and should be segregated. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's, you got to do it that way. The dark meat goes slow and low. And by the time you're done, it's succulent. It's pull apart. It's like pulled pork mm. if you do it right. And the white meat, I like to bring that up to, you know, 150 to 155 degrees and then let it rest. And I think that's one of the biggest things with turkey is it's a big piece of meat you gotta let it rest and the longer you let it rest the juicier it's going to be before you carve it and that's great because you can get it all done ahead of time and then worry about all your other stuff it's funny because we talked about separating white and dark meat and we did a thanksgiving for 350 people at a church Shoo. a couple of years pre-covid the congregation was able to cook the turkeys in those blue reynolds wrap type mm-hmm. of turkey bags which are weird and bring them back to me <laughs> Okay, and now I'm not talking about sexy turkeys. I'm talking about every random turkey you can possibly see from any of our supermarkets, right? And a lot of people brought them back raw. Mm. And what was happening is if they saw the little uh, thermometer pop-up or whatever in the breast, they were assuming, because it was golden on the outside, that the turkey was ready. So thermometers. One of the worst inventions ever brought into the culinary world was that stupid little plastic (laughs) thing that somehow. Indicates nothing. Nothing. (laughs) So it indicates that you're going to be wrong. One year we removed the actual back, you know, and kind of pressed down on the turkey. And that was great for carving purposes too. Spatchcock. That's right. That's the term. And it cooks fast and it cooks even. And when you do that, I've taken the whole back out as well. And now I roast that ahead of time, and now I've got it for my turkey stock so I can have my gravy. So it makes things so much easier, I think. Your cooking time is reduced by a ton. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Now, some people will get a frozen turkey from Mm -hmm. the grocery store. I once did a turkey helpline when I was working for a food magazine, and the call for help that we got the most was, I just went to go serve the turkey. There are parts that are still raw, or the turkey hasn't been thawed properly. What do you do day of if you have a frozen turkey that is still frozen? Buy another one? Or yeah, <laughs> go, go get a fresh one. Go get a fresh one. <laughs> My recommendation if you're going to buy a frozen turkey is to get ahead of it by a full week. That's right. Mm. Because you need to completely thaw the bird, and that has to be done in the refrigerator. Exactly right, for safety reasons, yep. And then after that, you should brine your bird. What does brining do? It keeps the bird from drying out. It adds a lot of flavor to it. In the basic sense, uh, it's salt, it's sugar, water, and then you can add in your spices, your bay leaf, your black peppercorn. It's a way of ensuring that there's some flavor, and it takes away some of that concern about it being a dry bird at the end of the day. 
So the big thing with brining is the salt. And so salt will work its way into the flesh of the bird. And what salt will do is it'll actually hold water. And so your, your bird's going to have more moisture because of the salt. The salt also obviously seasons the meat, which gives you a better flavor. But if you want a really juicy bird, you got to dry or wet brine it and you got to use salt. What is a dry brine? So dry brine is just using salt, herbs, spices, things like that, where you just rub it all over the bird. And then you can throw it into a bag, like a big mm-hmm. plastic bag or a trash bag, wrap it all up. Like if you don't have room to do a wet brine where you need a big, large container that's going to completely submerge the turkey, you can do a dry brine. And I, I love dry brining chicken as well. You want to brine for a minimum of 24 hours. And then after that, I like to take the bird out of the brine, be it dry brine, wet brine. I usually rinse it off a bit. I pat it dry with paper towels. I put it onto a rack on a sheet pan and I put it back into the fridge and I just let it sit and dry on the outside. When you allow meat in particular to get dry on the outside, especially the skin, it forms something called a pellicle and that's going to give you a crust. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that's what it was called. And that's going to give you a crispier skin. And that's what you're going for, right? Yeah, sure. That's what makes it a beautiful bird and it's that crispy skin. I'm thinking about common things that people do when they're thinking about how to defrost or thaw something quickly. They make the mistake of adding hot water over the item. Oh, no. These are things that, you know, extremely. Any meat, whether it's a small cut of a chicken that you're leaving out, if you're going to put it in a bowl and you're going to put it in some water, it must be cold water. And it should have running water over the top to keep that regulation of the temperature because you don't want to make some pieces really warm up and some pieces cold because that's where we get bacteria really loving the chicken or whatever it is that is your host. So that's why when Jason's saying, you know, refrigerate it and give yourself some time, you always want to put it in the lowest level of your refrigerator. That's why buying a small bird makes sense. Yeah, um, even if you're buying molt- <laughs> multiple ones, right, because you got to think about that putting it in the bottom part of the fridge and towards the back, the coolest part of the fridge. And you want to use the lowest level so that things don't contaminate anything else that you might have, your pies or whatever it is. And Jason, you mentioned putting the turkey on a roasting rack. Is that just good form? And we we also want to roast it on a roasting rack? What are we putting under it? What's happening there? I like it to have as much airflow as possible so that it can really get as dry as possible. When I smoke the bird or roast the bird, because I do break it down, I do like to to roast it on a rack so that I get airflow underneath, so they get nice crispiness, even cook throughout. The best turkey I ever had, I was so surprised by because it was a smoked turkey. I was visiting family in Texas and, you know, when in Rome, so they smoked a small turkey. And when that turkey came out and we all tasted it, it was amazing. Talk about the the benefits maybe of why you might want to smoke a bird. The flavor of smoke with the turkey is fantastic. Typically, I'll smoke the dark meat until it, it hits 185. Hmm. I love that number for dark meat. That's deep. Mm-hmm. That's far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I get that on a lot sooner. And my breasts, I like to bring those up to 150 to 155. And then I let them rest and carry over. And they will come up to 165. Anything over 165 is dry. It's just, it is. And, and <laughs> yeah. if you're nervous about it, 
the USDA says 165 is safe, I, 160 is fully cooked. You'll That's be fine. Right. But you will have a really, really juicy, juicy bird. The other thing that the big, big tip that I have for turkey is turkey loves butter. I mean, everyone, yeah. everyone and everything loves butter, except for <laughs> except for our waistlines. But <laughs> this is Thanksgiving, and mm-hmm. it's about bounty and harvest and celebration of food. And I think butter is just perfect for that. And so I really like to get underneath the skin, mm-hmm. and I like to throw some butter up under there. You know, good butter. Yeah, give it a butter massage, right? Get the butter on there. Now, I want to get some, like, turkey stuffing tips. What do you tell people who want to no. cook the stuffing inside the bird? Now, Jason mentioned that Norman Rockwell painting. Uh-huh. That bird in that painting is totally stuffed. We've learned a thing or two about stuffing a turkey since the 1940s. So talk to me about how and where we should be cooking the stuffing. On the side. So mm. it becomes dressing, supposedly. But same thing, stuffing, you do it up the way you would. Just... As the bird cooks, all that stuff is cooking, all the blood or everything is happening in that turkey it's releasing. And you don't want that on your cornbread stuff. And just cook it on the side and people are going to love it and keep everyone safe, which is more important. I will tell you what's really popular at my house is that crusty outer layer of the stuffing. We don't call it dressing. Dressing's oil and vinegar. Exactly. Um, (laughs) That's why it's such a weird name. So the top of the stuffing. That crispy part Mm -hmm. is what everybody wants, right? It's the corner of the brownie. Yeah. (laughs) So what I've started to do is I do stuffing muffins. And so I do muffin tins. I fill them with melted butter. So basically take the muffin tin, put a little pat of butter into each little muffin, throw it in the oven. Have your stuffing ready. I like to take turkey stock, all Mm -hmm. different kinds of breads, celery, onions, button mushrooms, you know, your, your typical fresh thyme, sage, things like that, bacon, guanciale. That's our basic stuffing. Mm-hmm. Make those into like a mushy, you know, get the bread toasted, but then get it all like nice and wet. Form it into like a baseball. Throw it into the hot muffin tin. Hello. Little pat of butter on top. Throw it into a hot oven and then just let it get crispy. And then you can pull those out and you could do that first thing in the morning. Yep. Just let them sit. They're fine. And then right before you serve, you can blast them. You can even take them out of the muffin tin. They've come Mm -hmm. together at this point. And then you can blast them again and you get this great sort of like stuffing muffin where it's (laughs) more crispiness and it's really easy to serve. I love to do that traditional type Mm -hmm. of, of, of stuffing slash dressing. You really should have two or three different kinds of stuffing. We moved a little bit away from turkey, but I just want to ask you about some tips for carving before we move on to some other sides besides stuffing. What are your tips for carving a turkey? Because some people like to do it at the table for dramatic effect, or some people are like, oh, no, it's it's a really messy part of the process. I'm going to do it where no one can see me. How should we be going about the task of carving a turkey? One, you want to have a sharp knife, and that's extremely important. Otherwise, you're going to butcher the meat, and it's going to look... No matter how you cut it, it's not going to be so well. Mm -hmm. And then follow the actual anatomy of the bird. There's a way of actually breaking up a chicken where you you don't look like you hacked away at it. So you're using the bones and kind of testing where that snap would normally be, you know, in the cartilage of, of it. So you want to kind of do that and kind of take away the legs, the wings, and be left with the actual breasts there. And then there's 
carving around it as well to kind of get that heart shape going. So I like taking it off the table. I just feel like I don't want to mess up everything else anyhow. Just getting a good size cutting board because if you're working on a small space, it's probably not going to work out too well for you. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that the bird is actually rested. Because if the bird is hot, first of all, it's hard to deal with a hot piece of meat, but then you're also going to let all the deliciousness just soak up on your cutting board, which can be used for your gravy or, you know, just putting it over your mashed potatoes or whatever it is that you're going to be doing. So let it cool. Get yourself comfortable. Make sure you take something underneath your cutting board to make sure that your board is not moving. So you might want to put a wet paper towel, a kitchen towel, something that's going to give you some firmness. And just start carving at an angle. There's no, like, chopping down on it because otherwise it starts to separate the meat as well. And a restaurant tip, I would say, is hot food needs to go onto hot plates. So when I am serving up a couple turkeys, we're going to have a couple of platters because everything's family style, I throw those platters into the oven. Yep. Or I have a plumber's torch, (laughs) (laughs) and I torch the platter. But make sure that the platter is is warm, not screaming hot. That would be bad. But make sure that you're going to put warm meat onto a warm platter. It's going to be end of November. It's going to be chilly. Hmm. So that's a big one. For me, my dark meat, literally, I pull the bones out. So if you let it get to 185, you tent it with foil, and you let it rest for 45 to an hour, it will still be hot. But you can literally pull the bones out of the of mm. the uh, thigh. I usually leave the drumsticks whole because there's mm-hmm. a couple people that just love like yes. to get down on a drumstick. Yeah. That's a treat. And then because I've broken it out already, I can lay the breast down onto a cutting board. Like Chef Raquel said, you just go on an angle, have a super sharp knife. That electric thing, to me, it just rips up the skin. Mm-hmm. And I want every piece to have a little bit of nice crispy skin. So just take your time. Fan it out nicely. If for some reason, oh man, it's dry. Mm. Great. Melt some butter. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And even better, (laughs) make it brown butter. Yes. Oh, yes. Makes all the difference. Get the nuttiness on it. Throw throw a little thyme in there, maybe a clove Mm. of garlic. Mm. Let it get brown. You only need like three sticks. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let it get brown. Let it get foamy. And then just ladle that ever so gently over that meat. Everyone will be like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. It's so juicy. Yeah. It'll take on the turkey flavor. It'll enhance it. It'll be so good. And then, of course, you got your gravy. You're going to be fine. You're listening to Jason Sobosinski and Chef Raquel Rivera sharing their turkey wisdom. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. It's time for a short break. When we get back, more tips for gravy and cranberry sauce and giving yourself some grace when things go sideways. I don't think I've done a Thanksgiving or any holiday where I haven't set off a smoke alarm. (laughs) You got to set off a smoke alarm. Something's got to boil over. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Dion Aiken. I'm with two cooks who know their way around a Thanksgiving table. Raquel Rivera is the chef behind A Pinch of Salt, and Jason Sobosinski is a man behind some of your favorite Connecticut eateries. He is not a lobbyist for big butter, but he does recommend using an obscene amount of it to rescue a dry bird. So we learned that ladling a nutty, herby brown butter over the turkey is one way to go. Now I want to get some tips for making a great gravy. I think of stock. Stock. I'm really, you know, really starting there. And you can do this ahead of time. It's something that's not complicated at all. It's normally onions and celery and carrots, you know, using scraps as making your stock, right? You don't have to necessarily buy carrots and buy celery. And these can be things that you've saved along the way and put it in a little Ziploc bag and have it frozen. Anytime you peel an onion, put the peel in. And all of that Mm -hmm. comes together with some herbs. And normally you want to use either woody herbs, you know, maybe a couple of springs of thyme. But if you're going to use leafy ones like parsley, use the stems because they're really great in something like that. They can hold up to that cooking process that's going to be happening while it's kind of not boiling, but simmering down and, and focusing those flavors. Some people, you know, can I throw fennel in there? We don't want to make it the kitchen sink. It's the <laughs> like simple hearty flavors that are pretty adaptable in things that we're doing. So like something like rosemary versus thyme, I can throw a whole bunch of sprigs of thyme in there. But rosemary Mm. can be such a strong herb. So when in doubt, cut it back a little bit. And the idea of it is not to just throw all these vegetables in and just throw water in it and, and boil it. Boiling doesn't allow flavors... So brown it up. Now you can get it into your pot and then add some cold water. And we normally start things with cold water just because it's cleaner. And it also allows everything to come to temperature at the same exact time and let it be. And as you reduce it, reduce it, reduce it, you get a more focused flavor. If you're going to buy outside stock, I stay away from those little bouillon weirdness. Mm. (laughs) Really salty, not developed in any flavor, tastes really artificial. Mm-hmm. If you're going to buy it, buy stock. And there's a difference between stock and broth. Try to go for the stock route. And the difference is one is actually cooked down with the bone, so you're getting a little bit more body in it. And go unsalted because you're going to be flavoring it the At way the you need yeah. to anyways. The other problem, thickening your, your gravy. Yes. What you do know, you do? 
I do, I like from the very beginning when I'm browning things to add my flour. It's just kind of a safety way. Or then at the end, we talked about butter just a few times. Um, <laughs> some butter and flour together, kind of blending it really well. And then once you come to a boil in your sauce, you want to start whisking in some of that butter flour combination and letting it return to a boil because then it starts to develop some thickness and you can kind of gauge if you need a little bit more butter flour or if you just need to give it some time. I'm in the same camp, by the way, that was a, a stock masterclass. Sure was. I'll say again, if you break your bird down, you can take your backbone out and that with the turkey neck, which I hope people are not throwing that away. Turkey neck is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Put those on a pan, throw them in the oven, roast them till they're just nice, light golden brown, dark golden brown, however you want to go. That's a great thing to mm -hmm. add in your stock. And so you can get your stock done way ahead. Get it in the fridge. When it comes to thickening, I used to make a roux and I like to cook mm -hmm. the roux, the equal parts butter to flour. You can make a light roux, you can make a dark roux. Dark roux have a lot of flavor. They can get a little more like peanut buttery almost. Mm -hmm. But I have some family members who are gluten-free. Mm -hmm. So I've transitioned over to do cornstarch, which I don't like as much, but as long as you can make a slurry ahead of time, never add the cornstarch directly mm -hmm. into your pot of stock when making gravy. Always do it ahead of time. Make it on the side. Make a slurry. Add it in. And remember that you will not see the thickening until your stock comes up to boil. And then the cornstarch will bloom and it'll come mm -hmm. thick. So really, really careful with how much you, you do mm -hmm. because you can make like- Porridge. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. like gravy pudding. That is an excellent yeah. tip. I didn't know that. So you're not adding the cornstarch directly to your no, pan. No, never, never, ever. It will clump. And yeah. then you will have clumpy gravy, which is just unacceptable. <laughs> yeah. um, having said that, you can, even after you've added the cornstarch or roux, you can run your gravy through a fine mesh sieve. You don't need to do that. It's fancy pants, but it's fun <laughs> to have a really silky, mm -hmm. delicious gravy. If you make your stock ahead of time, cool it down. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'll skim if there's a little bit of fat. Sometimes I will not because I happen to like it. Yeah. The next day, you can actually reduce your stock down into more of like a glace and you can almost make a gravy with no thickener. Mm -hmm. And it won't be as viscous but you can add wine to it and do other you know, things that'll sort of enhance it. I like to do a couple gravies because I got mm. a couple birds. So I always do a traditional gravy. My parents are vegetarian. My mother is famous for her soy gravy, which is the simplest recipe in the world. It's mm. literally a roux. And then you put soy sauce in it. It's so good. And it's flavorful and it's fermented and it's, awesome. it's really nice. And you can thin it with water or vegetable stock. And speaking of flavors that are maybe outside of what is like on a typical Thanksgiving table, Raquel, I understand you are from a Puerto Rican household. Your mom is Puerto Rican. What is the specialty that you add that's like part of your culture for your Thanksgivings? Benin or uh, pork shoulder. Mm. Uh, that's been seasoned with a lot of garlic, mm. oregano, Achote seed for color, and you infuse it in some oil and rub it on it, and it's delicious. It's fat. It's it's fat. <laughs> it falls off the bone. Skin it's on. Just, it's just yes, crispy. The crispy oh skin. My oh my god! Who uh, needs the, turkey? I just think you know a turkey and pernil. That oh, yeah. is the ultimate god, Thanksgiving. So 
I would like to know what your texts look like the week leading up to Thanksgiving. Like, what are the most common questions that you're getting from family and friends? We could help a lot of people right now. What are the common mistakes that people make that you can help them maybe not make this year? My biggest texts that I get leading up to Thanksgiving is, I have a 22-pound XYZ bird. How long do I cook it for? Mm-hmm. My answer is always, here's a link to buy a thermopen, an Instareed thermometer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> buy one of these immediately. I can't tell you how long to cook it for. I can give you an idea, but really you, you got to cook it to temp. Yep. And then you got to rest it. I can't stress that enough. There is no temperature time formula that will give you a great result. It is always a... How much internal temp am I reaching and how long am I resting after that? To me, I think that's the biggest tip to doing a bird and doing it correctly. True. So one of my favorite things about Thanksgiving is cranberry sauce. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, there are two ways of doing this. Of course, I make a super simple one that's just like a bag of cranberries, the juice and the zest of one big orange, and a cup of maple syrup. That's like the Mm -hmm. most simple one. But... And I want to know how you guys feel about this. I would also like to have on my table the can. Yeah, you have <laughs> Me the can. too. Have it's the can. classic. Yes. I spent a year abroad in, in Australia where they do not celebrate Thanksgiving. And I was with a family that was putting me and, and a friend of mine up. It was during Thanksgiving. I said, we're, we're going to make you the whole dinner. And we were able to get everything Except for that can. And so we went to like six different stores and we finally went to a store that touted having like American food and we found one and it was old. But we did it. We went for (laughs) it. And they thought it was the weirdest thing ever. It was like, yeah, you just – it has to stay whole and then you slice it. (laughs) Like what? What is this? Um, I love to do the cranberries and the zest and juice of an orange. Mm -hmm. I do maple syrup as well. So you you hit mine – my secret ingredient is tons of black pepper. Uh-huh. And then I like to do just a little bit of cardamom. It can be really overpowering, so you just have to have it in the background. But it has a really nice sort of like menthol. Like no one even knows mm. what it is, but cardamom hits really nicely in cranberry sauce. So check that out. But go sparingly. Have either of you, and I think this will give people – some hope here. Like, have either of you had some some big either turkey fails or just like general Thanksgiving mishaps? Tell me a story that is maybe not your best Thanksgiving, but it certainly was memorable. I think my memorable was that 350 raw turkey and what do I do now? <laughs> I mean, it really made me sweat. Um, but just like we've put the turkey in and, you know, in some households they use the oven also as storage. So here you are preheating an oven, and yet there's still a pot. We got to take everything out and make sure there's not one left way in the Uh back because the smoking and the alarm system just isn't what you want happening. And that's that's happened before. I don't think I've done a Thanksgiving or any holiday where I haven't set off a smoke alarm. (laughs) You got to set off a smoke alarm. Something's got (laughs) to boil over. I remember this years ago, I finished carving the turkey onto a platter. It was a beautiful glass platter. And my mother went to go, I'm going to stick my mother out on this one. She went to go bring, because because she's a vegetarian, she went to go bring this platter of all of the turkey meat all spread out on this platter. I don't know what happened. It dropped, shattered everywhere, glass everywhere. That year, we basically, we had sides, which we have more sides than anything else. So whatever. And then we just kind of picked on the carcass 
pieces that were left. They were, <laughs> Vegetarian Thanksgiving for everyone. There was no turkey, yeah. Yep. <laughs> it was fine. I don't think anyone it's even missed it. Right? It was just like – and I'm half Italian, so of course there's always, always. pasta as Hello. well for no reason. <laughs> now, the reason is because you're Italian. There you there go. You go. <laughs> there you go. Part of what makes Thanksgiving not as stressful is when other people are helping too. They And people want to help, right? They mm-hmm. want you to tell them to bring something. So we know we're going to ask the person who's not the greatest cook in the family. We know they're going to bring, bring wine. 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 <laughs> <Yes>. Yep. <laughs> and then, but otherwise, like Jason was saying in the beginning, find what the person's strengths are and then like, okay, you do that. Now, I happen to know that both of you, while you might like pie, neither one of you actually wants to be the one baking it. So <laughs> that's easy, right? <laughs> ask a friend. You bring the pie. And, and if they're not a good baker, then you say, I, this is a great bakery Seriously. I heard of if you <laughs> lead, them, lead them down that road. Totally, totally. As we wrap up, do we ha- have any final tips like, okay, newbies, these are the three things you have to make sure you do? I would say first, relax. Yeah. It's Thanksgiving. Relax. Sometimes yes. we get so caught up and everything has to be perfect. And you know what? It honestly, there's always going to be a slip up, even for the person who's done this several times. There's always. always something. So be patient with yourself and kind. Have a drink of wine. That's like chill out a little bit. Because the most important part to me when everyone's gathering is that they feel at home. And if you are going around feeling anxious or upset at yourself, it's going to pour out into everything else. Just be easy on yourself. I like that. I was going to go that route and you stole it. So. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll stay on theme. I think that what's Thanksgiving without mashed potatoes? Hello. Yeah. Right? I think that people need to understand that if you're really going to make fantastic mashed potatoes, you need like a, a one to three ratio, butter to potatoes. <laughs> yes. So if you're going to do three pounds of potatoes, that's a pound of butter. I know that sounds like jarring, but you'll make really good mashed potatoes and people will talk about them. Yeah, mm-hmm. you'll be the one. And they'll the be one. like, what, what did you do? Why are these so good? And you'll just be like, eh, listen to NPR. <laughs> and then you have your wine and you relax and you have a good time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And when, if you are sort of feeling stressed or you're looking at this to-do list and things are just not coming out perfect, remember that the whole reason that you've been cooking for that whole weekend or whatever, however long you've been preparing, is because it's our chance to sit down and have a meal with our families. And at the end, like, no one cares if the turkey is a little dry because that's what gravy's for and butter's for. And and we're just really like, this is our chance to just sit together This one time, maybe for some of us, this one time, all of us getting together, just being around a table and being grateful. Yep. Yep. And don't forget, leftovers are always better than the meal itself. Yes. Jason and Raquel, thank you so much for being with me to talk about Thanksgiving food. And I think we've probably helped some newbies and maybe given some well-seasoned Thanksgiving cooks a few tips, too. So thank you so much for your time. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday. Same to you and everyone out there. Yeah, thank you very much. Happy Thanksgiving. That was Chef Raquel Rivera, owner of A Pinch of Salt, and Jason Sobosinski, an owner and partner of several restaurants in and around New Haven, including Olmo Bagels, which just won Best Bagels at New York City's Bagel Fest. To celebrate the bagelry's big win, Jason's making everything bagel bread stuffing this year. He'll report back. 
You'll find recipes for turkey and all the fixins plus pie on our website. And for vegetarians like Mrs. Sobosinski, look for the pumpkin lasagna rolls recipe. It's on ctpublic.org food. Before we go to break, Thanksgiving dinner looks different for every family. Intern Letitia Peters talks with her mom, Nicole Lewis, about their family tradition. Now, my parents are Grenadians, so there are some holidays we've adopted to embrace the country they immigrated to about 25 years ago. Like a lot of kids, I learned a pretty whitewashed, peaceful version of the history behind Thanksgiving. But in my family and other immigrant families across the country, this holiday represents so much more than the Thanksgiving myth. It's one of the few times a year our families can come together to celebrate our culture and traditions. So my family has scrapped the traditionally American Thanksgiving dinner menu. Instead, we eat things from our own culture. So your table may have a classic turkey, but ours has some divinely Caribbean seasoned salmon. We've also swapped fluffy dinner rolls and stuffing with fried bakes and saltfish. And fried bakes are flattened out discs of flour, salt, baking powder, sugar, plopped onto a frying pan and fried to perfection and sort of like a biscuit kind of thing. My mom, Nicole, told me a bit more about the Caribbean recipes on our Thanksgiving plates. So why do we stop making traditional American Thanksgiving dinner? To me, Thanksgiving is about tradition and continuing it. You having your kids continue the tradition and it's about the amount of time you spend on that day. Coming from the Caribbean, the food that we cook daily is what we should be sitting and giving thanks to. That's my Thanksgiving. Traditional Thanksgiving with turkey, um, mashed potatoes, gravy, and collard greens and stuff. I don't cook that on a daily basis. Actually, I don't cook that at all. Like, I don't eat turkey. So think food like macaroni pie, stewed chicken, baked fish, and rice and peas. So when Thanksgiving come, we all go in the kitchen together, me and my kids, and we make that food and we sit and we enjoy it and it become a tradition. That's why we don't do turkey because I think it's not part of our tradition. What are some dishes that are rooted in our tradition and culture? Some of the dishes are macaroni pie, fried rice with vegetables, baked salmon, and cake, pound cake, cocoa tea, and bread, Caribbean bread from scratch, made from scratch. One of the things that I love making Thanksgiving morning is fry bakes with codfish. My kids love cocoa tea and fry bakes. The thing I love about Thanksgiving is just bringing your culture into Thanksgiving because it's about what your family see, how your family perceive Thanksgiving, coming together and just keeping the tradition going for the next generation. Thank you. That was our intern, Letitia Peters, and her mom, Nicole Lewis. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. 
Coming up, a professor of Native and Indigenous Studies at Yale and a student seed keeper talk about their relationship with one very tenacious Buffalo Creek squash. I'd kind of walk by and look at it and think to myself, you know, you and me, squash, we're just doing our best. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Next up, a story about squash. Well, it's really about much more than that. Producer Tegan Engel spoke with our next guests at a Three Sisters garden at the Yale Farm. It's an educational farm focused around the connections between land, food, and culture, and it's managed by the Yale Sustainable Food Program, YSFP for short. My name is Hi'ile Julia Kavehipuakaha'opulani Hobart. I'm um, an assistant professor of Native and Indigenous Studies in the program in Ethnicity, Race, and Migration at Yale University. My name is Rebecca Salazar. I'm an undergraduate student in the major Ethnicity, Race, and Migration at Yale College, currently in the position of seed keeper and program liaison between the Yale Sustainable Food Program and the Native American Cultural Center. As you might expect, there isn't much to see on the farm when I arrive in November. But earlier this fall, the field was lush with crops in the Three Sisters Garden, all ready to harvest for the Indigenous students' fall feast. In North American Native cuisine, the Three Sisters are corn, beans, and squash. And like family, they help each other grow. The corn stalks provide support for the climbing bean vines, The beans nourish the soil with nitrogen, and the big squash leaves provide shade, keeping the weeds in check and moisture in the earth. I asked Hi'ile and Rebecca to tell me about the special Buffalo Creek squash grown here. Originally of the Haudenosaunee Nation, the squash is called Doshowe, and this year's crop was almost totally lost, but not because of animals or flooding. In the garden, Hi'ile showed me a hole in the ground. What you're looking at right here is the bottom rail of the hoop house that the three sisters were growing underneath. And what you can see under this part of the rail is this huge hole in the ground. It's where a Buffalo Creek squash had grown underneath the rail and so it had squished itself underneath. And then the bulb of the squash um, had been kind of flourishing here despite the kind of uh, cramped conditions that it was living in. We'll get back to the resiliency of that one remaining squash in a bit. But first, for many indigenous people, connecting with the foods of their heritage is vital, and it can help to counter the challenges of living under colonization. Hi'ile and Rebecca shared their perspectives on this as two indigenous women tending this garden. Rebecca, I know that you helped plant this garden. Can you tell us a little about your experience with the Three Sisters Garden and in specific the squash, the Buffalo Creek squash? Mm. I find it so fascinating because I learned in my research that squash was actually the first sister to be domesticated because of its ability to withstand cold and a lot of water and just flexibility that really represents the role that the squash has taken on the season. To be flexible, to be resilient, and the relationship that the three of them have is what reciprocity 
resulting in abundance looks like. Can you describe a little bit, what does the Buffalo Creek squash look like for people who've never seen one before? Oh, it's very, it has a a personality, a silly little personality. They're quite thick-skinned, bright orange, and, oh, just fleshy. They are surprisingly enormous. And when we were growing the garden this year, it was, you know, the the corn shoots up first, so you kind of see that. And then if you look closely at the corn stalk, you see the, the bean pods there. And you'll see the leaves and the blossoms of the squash. But for the longest time when we were in the garden, I, I was like, I really don't see the squash. Until one day I was walking through the garden, and there's like this six or seven pound honking orange thing sitting there you know there's not like a ton of tiny ones they're just really these spectacularly present giants that are littered across the garden Mm. it's quite fun yeah beautiful i want to hear so much more about the squash but i also want people to learn a little bit about the history of it and so can you tell us a little about the origin of the squash and why this particular squash was chosen to grow in this space. The Buffalo Creek squash comes from the Haudenosaunee Nation. It has been entrusted to the Abenaki Nation's seed keeper, Liz Charlebois, who the Sustainable Food Program at the farm has had a relationship with for seven years. Um, That relationship began because of a graduate student at the Native American Cultural Center, Noah Schlager, who was really passionate about making sure that there was a line of relationality and reciprocity with local seed keepers. And it really represents this kind of entrusting and caretaking that occurs when we acknowledge how connected we are to everybody who lives here. Can you talk about the importance for Indigenous peoples of connecting with your Native foods and foodways? For Native peoples, our foodways really intersect with our origin stories, the way that we understand our relationships to place, and continuing a lot of those relations and traditions into the present moment. There's a lot of specificity about the way that different Native communities relate to food and the places that they're from. For me, I'm Native to Hawaii, which means I'm very far from my traditional homelands. So even though I identify as Indigenous, I'm not Indigenous to here. And we have to think really carefully about thoughtful ways that we can not only engage in Indigenous food ways, you know, writ large, but the ways that we can think about our relationship to Indigenous communities in the New Haven and Connecticut area. Mm. And Rebecca, I know you share this experience Mm -hmm. as someone who's from the southern border region of what we call the U.S. now. What is your relationship to the Buffalo Creek squash and other plants that are Indigenous to the Northeast and Connecticut area Mm. um, as someone who is Indigenous to a different part of this land? To me, the plants, the Buffalo Creek squash, the white-capped corn, all of the beans that we planted, rattlesnake and skunk beans, although they're not from my tribe and my people, they really represent the interconnection between tribes that has existed for thousands of years. And the respect for food that is so imprinted in our identities and the way that we see ourselves, for example, as children of corn, as being older relatives to us or even parents because they sustain us and because we become who we are through them. And how does it feel to you 
to have this experience of growing these plants and planting them, growing them, harvesting them, saving their seeds, all these pieces. How does that impact your spirit and your experience of of being here? It has genuinely been one of the most joyful experiences of my life, and it has really grounded my presence here in what we would call the New Haven area as being somebody who is gifted or encouraged by the land itself. This experience has made me realize so much how all of life is abundant and generous and also demands our own reciprocity and responsibility and disciplined, meticulous attention while also being playful and joyful and so complex in its entirety. Thank you. Are there ways that growing the Buffalo Creek squash is an act of resistance or healing? I think it's very much both. Every time we give ourselves opportunities to think carefully about why we're here and what we're doing here in relation to Indigenous histories and present lives, that in itself is an act of resistance against the centuries of erasure that Native communities have experienced. And I've heard you express so much joy about this particular enormous orange gorgeous squash. What did it feel like to you to harvest the squash, to, to touch it and be with it? Well, we had a little bit of drama around our Buffalo Creek squash harvest this semester. The students and I had already harvested our corn and our beans. The squash were the last to pick because they're so hardy. A couple of days before we were set to come up here and do our final harvest of the season, I got a message from the YSFP staff who said, oh my gosh, we're absolutely devastated to tell you that somebody came in the middle of the night and took the Buffalo Creek squash. And what felt especially heartbreaking about it was that every year when we harvest these plants, we save the seeds for replanting the following year. And that's a way of carrying forward the gift from Liz Charlebois. So we were devastated at the prospect of losing the opportunity to carry our gift forward. And then the messages that I got from the YSFP staff were quickly followed up and they said, we thought all of the squash had been taken, but there's one that's still in the plot. And it was the squash that had grown underneath the rail of the hoop house and had gotten stuck. So it couldn't be taken. And this was a squash that we had all developed a funny relationship with because it was this fruit that had been flourishing under these conditions (laughs) that were less than ideal. And over the weeks that we had been in the garden, I'd kind of walk by and look at it and think to myself, you know, you and me, squash, we're just doing our best. (laughs) And, (laughs) And so when we discovered that this was the squash that remained, we were completely overjoyed. We not only had the seeds for the next year, but it was the most special of the squashes in the garden that was still there. Four of the squash were returned in the middle of the night thanks to a mostly word-of-mouth campaign. So that meant that not only did we have seeds for next year, but we had squash to add to our three sisters' succotash that would be the feature of our fall feast, which happened about a week after that. There's one more special thing to note about where seeds from the returned squash ended up. 
When we thought about the fall feast and having a large community event at the farm to cap off the food sovereignty course, we really wanted to give something to the folks that came to the meal as a gesture of reciprocity. So we gifted out these linen satchels and the linen satchels are this kind of orangey yellow color that was hand dyed by the students in the class using a native Hawaiian varietal of turmeric that we call Olena. This was a special crop that the farm had planted for us this year. There's some dried and shaved Olena in the bag that somebody could ground up and use in their cooking. Guests also received three seeds each of the white-capped corn, the skunk beans, and the Buffalo Creek squash. And then the final thing that they received was a small paper packet of native Hawaiian sea salt, mm. uh, which is kind of, we fashioned out of a little origami. <laughs> a little pink paper to match the pink salt. It's so yeah. beautiful. Oh, wow. That is such a special gift. My goodness. I'm so glad you had the seed that you didn't lose all the seeds. It's we really had special. enough to share. Yay. And I know that you had a conversation with your students about the theft of these squash and, and kind of what they thought about that. Can you share what they said and what that meant to you? Yeah. I had class the next day and I sat down with the students and then I asked them what they thought might be done. Uh, how would we think about what happens next? What happens next year when we plant the plot again? And I think I'll turn it over to Rebecca to give us a sense of what that conversation mm. was. The whole class really went through this whirlwind of emotions. Obviously, it's quite upsetting to wake up and something that you had so hoped for is just kind of gone. But we'd had so many profound conversations throughout the whole semester about property is theft and inclusion, community. And the whole class as a collective came to the conclusion that we didn't want the solution to be something that was punitive or to be something that created borders, but we did want there to be a consideration to find more ways to educate people about how important this particular plot is and what it really means to people. And so at a time when I think it would be really easy to consider putting up cameras around the farm or locking fences, we really thought about how much more important it was, instead of keeping people out, that the solution may instead be to bring community in. And that really exemplifies values of indigenous food sovereignty and, and land sovereignty and sovereignty as, as a value, yeah. When the Buffalo Creek squash were taken, you know, my first feeling was, was sadness, but then my second feeling was, this is a great learning opportunity. Mm. It's kind of easy to move through these concepts when there's no resistance. And so when you get to a moment where you really have to think about how to apply the theory in practice, it was really heartening that we could so clearly and collectively see what the solution might be. Yeah, I love it. I love that it is just such a test to say like, oh, I stand for nonviolence or I stand for transformative justice or any of these things, but then in a moment where there is a theft or there is a harm, how do you actually hold true to those values and how does that affect how you're understanding and thinking about what's happening? And it's beautiful that the students came to that. 
Can you explain what rematriation is and how it relates to the squash or the experience of planting the squash? Mm. Rematriation is a returning to indigeneity and because colonization is so gendered in its violence and has in many places uprooted matriarchal structures, it's particularly important to focus on the work that women and two-spirit people do to maintain what could have been lost or was taken and bring it back to life. How does the experience of growing the Buffalo Creek squash give you a feeling of self-determination? Well, I think this year in particular, self-determination came from realizing that we have the power to think about our relationships to place and community. We can shape that by thinking about how to bring people in, how to educate each other and the folks around us about these really beautiful and self-sustaining practices that we're trying to cultivate here. And Rebecca, one of your roles is as a seed saver with the Native American Cultural Center Mm. and the farm here. And how does it feel to you to be a seed keeper, a seed saver? To me, it feels like a connection to my ancestors that I've always looked for. It's something that is grounding, that encourages me to look at all of the responsibilities that I have to other people. It becomes quite liberating to, to realize how interconnected people are and how, how much we are vulnerable to non-human life and taken care of by non-human life. Wonderful. And just to finish, I know the squash was cooked and prepared for your fall feast. Can you describe just what what did you make with it? What did it taste like? Yeah, mm. so here you're looking at our menu card for this year's Indigenous Fall Feast, where we served about 200 people a three sister succotash with beans, corn, squash, tomatoes, and we added some peppers. Mm-hmm. We had a wild rice salad with hen of the woods mushrooms and roasted carrots that were grown here on the farm. Because I'm Hawaiian and the farm is so accommodating of me, we did a beet poke with limu or seaweed bought from native Hawaiian seaweed farmers in Hawaii. Wow. We had a white cap cornbread with hand-ground white-capped corn that we grew here. And then uh, we did a chia pudding with popped amaranth for dessert. Mm, So beautiful. Thank you all so much. Yeah, thank you. This was really fun. That was producer Tegan Engel with Hi'ile Hobart, a Yale University professor of Native and Indigenous Studies, and Rebecca Salazar, a student seed keeper with the Native American Cultural Center and the Yale Sustainable Food Program. You can see photos from the farm, including a giant Buffalo Creek squash and a gift satchel with seeds for a Three Sisters Garden on our website. Go to ctpublic.org seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and Tegan and Meg Dalton, Catrice Claudio, Stephanie Stender, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera, Our interns are Letitia Peters and Joey Morgan. Special thanks to Fafa Van Ha and the Yale Sustainable Food Program for their help on the episode. Whatever your traditions are around Thanksgiving or a special harvest, we want you to know we're grateful for you. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.